We are still in our sermon series on uh, the Psalms of Ascent, and we've called it the Songs for the Road, and we've kind of seen a little bit of the history. We've remembered where these songs have come from, that it was, uh, they were songs that were sung by the travelers as they would travel to Jerusalem uh, at least once a year, but sometimes up to three times more than that, um, but for the feasts that would go on in Jerusalem. And so, because the people of God longed to worship their God in his presence, they would travel to Jerusalem, even going to where the, the tabernacle was originally, and then where they built the temple, and in the temple was housed the Ark of the Covenant. And, and so the, there, was an, there was an understanding that they wanted to go to the presence of the God to worship him. So just a quick recap, in Psalm 120, Jeremiah uh, a couple weeks ago led us, and he, and he talked about the beginning of the journey, and and how they dwelt among a people that were, that were liars and they were deceivers. And, and they longed for home. They longed to be in the presence of God. And then in Psalm 121, the song sings about a guardian and a keeper that would keep them on their journey. So that God would, would go with them. The creator of heaven and earth would guard them and keep them as they journeyed to him. Last week we talked about rejoicing in Jerusalem. And so David's psalm, when he would remember what it was to be in the house of the Lord, to be in the presence of those that he had redeemed, and so the joy that he took in that. Well, that would seem like he made it, the journey's over. <laughs> and so we're, how can we have 11 more psalms about this journey if he, he's already arrived to the place where God is? Well, in Psalm 123, we're going to see that that really this is cyclical, like we talked about. They would go several times a year, and so this was the pattern of their lives. And so these songs would even remind them that, that it is a constant journey, that even once they get there, they, they would go back to the places where they were from, and then they would journey again. And so it is cyclical. The pilgrimage happened a lot. And the traveler would sing through those songs of ascent on the road. This morning, I want us to see that as servants of the Most High God, like the psalmist, we're going to look to him for mercy. But unlike the psalmist, we have the reality of the true merciful servant who has come in the person of Jesus Christ. That's our hope this morning, that we would remember, that we would, we would acknowledge who the psalmist is, that he's crying out for mercy knowing he needs mercy, and that we would put ourselves in that place. But as his cry is, is, is left unanswered, at least in the psalm, our cry has been answered, and God has come, and the merciful servant has come in the person of Jesus. As we're looking this morning um, at the idea of the, just kind of, it's a short psalm, so we're going to divide it in half. Two points, and then those two points are going to point to Jesus. But those first two verses really show us the posture of humility that the psalmist has. It begins with, I, I, to you I lift up my eyes. So to lift up your eyes means you have to look above you. So there's a posture that comes from that of humility, of resting underneath. And then looking up, and then what does he say? He says, oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. The idea of kingship, of royalty, of understanding that that person who sits on the throne has the right to declare whatever he will 
And as a servant, as someone below the throne, I do their bidding. I do what they say. I'll tell you, this is going to be tough for us. <laughs> right? When we think about servant, um, we kind of bristle. I know I bristle a little bit. I think, man, no, I don't have to serve. And yet, we're called to service. We're called to be humble, to look to Jesus, to lift up our eyes. But even servant in this text is actually more than a servant. It's not, it's not a butler. It's, it's not... Uh, a steward, because in this time, a servant really was a slave. Uh, a conquered people would serve under the conquerors. And so they would, they would actually need everything that they could have would come from the hand of the master. They didn't have anything in and of themselves except what they were given. In that time, the servant's life was at the will of the master. They looked to the master for provision, so food, housing, whatever they needed. They looked to the master for safety from those who would want to rob them. They looked to the master for reputation because everything that the master said about them was the only thing that mattered. And so their reputation hinged on what the master would say about the servant. All of this was the master-servant relationship, and the servant was completely in need of whatever the master would be able to give him. And while most servants may regret their position, right? If they were a conquered people, then they would regret being conquered. They would, they would have some animosity towards the conqueror. They would not want to be in that position. But the psalmist, he's, he delights in his position of servant. It's not a begrudging service, but a worshipful service. He says, oh, that O part, it's just one letter. But in that O, we see where the exclamation at, this, at the end of the sentence comes from. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. You see, the psalmist is thinking about the master, and he's thinking, who better to serve than the one who controls everything, the one who is king over everything. And so his attitude becomes one of worship. We're a, a proud people. I'm a, I'm a proud person. I guess I shouldn't speak for you. But I think generally as Americans, we, we sit and, and we kind of have this idea that whatever I have, I've earned. I've worked for it. And so we rest in pride. But the psalmist is remembering that everything that I have has come from the hand of the, the master who's given it to me. I pray that we'd be even just to, to, to chew on that this week, to think about it, to, to say, where have I assumed that I had a right to something instead of joyfully said, oh God, you have given this to me. Who am I that you would love me so much that you would shower me with, with provision, with safety? And maybe you're at a place where um, you're not feeling that. Maybe you're sick. Maybe there's been a a death in the family, maybe, there's, maybe you're struggling with your job. There's a lot of places that are real circumstances, right? And we don't want to belittle those circumstances, but we don't want to assume that I have the right to, to a job that treats me like, like it should. We don't want to assume that I have a right to a, a wife or a husband that would honor me 
right? We don't want to assume that I have a right to, to health. No, every good gift, every one of those things is grace upon grace that has been given to us by the Master. So we just remember, we, we rest there at a place of humility, looking up to the Master. In verse 2, it points to where the servant is looking. Both the servant looks to the master's hand and the maidservant looks to her mistress's hand. Again, hand it, it is the, the point where something is given. If it's given, it's given by the hand. So they're looking to the master for, for the, their hands. And they would often watch the master. If Maybe you've watched some old... Um, old movies, or read some fantasy books. I love to read fantasy, so I'm always reading, like, uh, I don't know, crazy stuff. But the servants would often just sit and wait for the master to to indicate something, whether it's a simple hand gesture that only the servant who knows the master would see, right? Or maybe it's a, a very clear hand signal. Stop, right? Come. Different hand signals, but they're watching the master's hand to see what he would have them do. Do we place ourselves in that position with God? Do we, do we honor him? Do we, do we hope, God, if you would just, if you would give me some sort of, you know, hand signal to, I would, I would want to move to do whatever it is that you've called, but often I'm wrestling with what I want. I'm looking at what I can do and where I should go and what I would want to do instead of looking to the master's hand. Sometimes there would be even more subtle Signals with the hand that only the master and the servant would know. And that's based on an intimacy, on a knowing of each other. Again, the hand is where, where the master provides. Everything the slave or the servant has is given to them by the master. And, and then it gets to the greatest need that the servant has. At the end of verse 2, it says, Till he has mercy upon us. Our greatest need from the master is mercy. Moving into verse 3, it says, Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. When we begin to, if you're a poet, if you uh, love literature, you can see that, that not only is this uh, a beautiful plea, but it's actually written in this beautiful way where it, it's, it's ha- the, uh, have mercy upon us. Right? Repeats it, but in the middle it's this acknowledgement of lordship. And it's beautiful, both in the way that it's written and in what it's telling us. You see, we hear the plea in this cry. The ask, the desire. It's not a demand. For the psalmist, he can't demand. He cannot demand mercy when he deserves justice. We just can't. We can't make that demand when we know that we deserve justice We cannot demand mercy, so if we receive mercy, it's a gift. So how can he make this plea with any hope of God granting mercy? If he knows he deserves justice, how can he make a plea for mercy to the God who is just and righteous? Well, the psalmist pleads for mercy because he knows the character and the disposition of his God. He knows that God is merciful in in himself. He's seen it. He remembers the story of God that's been passed down to him 
Often it was an oral tradition of passing down the stories of who God is. Some of them had the ability to read what, what had been written about who God was. But either way, whether it was an, a telling or a reading, they knew the story of God. They knew that God had come and saved his people out of Egypt. He had taken them from slavery and captivity and taken them out and saved them. That's the first story that would come to their minds when they think of a merciful God. Or they would think of the story that was told about creation and how God provided everything that they need. God is a merciful provider meeting the needs of His people. They would think about the God who kept them in the desert when they were wandering and and He met every need of food and of shelter. And He was with them, the greatest provision that He gave them. The God who brought them to the promised land and established them as a people. And the God who continued to preserve them. Even as they were captured, even as they were taken into slavery and then released and and traveled back to Jerusalem, they never doubted the character of their God. So that's why the psalmist can come and he can make the plea, have mercy upon us. Oh Lord, have mercy upon us. Because he knows the master that he's asking for mercy. Deuteronomy 4.31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. You see, this is the heart of God toward his people. We don't want to lose sight of what they're asking for mercy for. They're asking for mercy because they've had enough of contempt. Their soul has had more than enough. They've suffered the scorn of those around them. They suffer the contempt of the proud. Some of us know what that's like. I was talking to my wife, Randy, and she said, I, I don't really know what that's like, but I do know what suffering is like. I know what it means to feel like I can't take any more of this. God, have mercy. So maybe you're suffering from, from someone else and their pride and their contempt, or maybe you're suffering from just the circumstances of life, and what you need is mercy in those circumstances. Well, the good news is that we have the same God that the psalmist had, that we can cry to for mercy and say, Lord, I can't take any more. Will you have mercy? Will you save? Will you show us grace? And we've seen that whether he took the people out of their circumstances or whether he um, changed whatever it was that they were dealing with, whether he humbled the people around them so that they were no longer proud, God was always with his people. He never left them. And that's the greatest provision. That's the mercy that they needed. Well, how does this relate to us today? How do we take this and think about, well, I'm not a traveler. I'm not on the road to Jerusalem. I don't need, and maybe you're like my wife, and and you're thinking, I don't, suffer a lot of scorn or contempt from people around us. But we still need mercy. We long for mercy. Because if the Bible is true, then we will either receive justice, like we talked about in Ephesians, or we will receive mercy. And so, greater than whatever circumstances we're in, we need mercy as a whole, because there will come a judgment. It says that at the end... God will judge, and there will be those that are in Christ, and they will receive mercy, 
And there will be those who are outside of Christ, and they will receive judgment. So let's look at Jesus, the merciful Savior, this morning. I want to look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I'll read that to you. We're going to to look at a couple different scriptures just pointing to who Jesus is. What does it mean that he's come? How how, How does that relate to this service and mercy? Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I love this. This is Christ. This is the Son of God. And it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The psalmist is, is recognizing that he needs to, to serve, that the relationship that he has to God is master to servant. And so he's trying to walk as a servant. He's trying to do the bidding of his master, and yet he fails and he stumbles. And so we take this often and we're like, man, if I could just do that, if I could just be better at this, if I could look to Jesus, look to God, and I could, I could start my days with a good quiet time. Then, then all of this would work better. If I could remember these things, then I would please God. But the reality is that we cannot. We can't please God. We'll sit here and we'll, and we'll try really hard and, and we'll have bad days where we fail and then there's the shame that comes and we're just wrestling with it. But if we believe that the merciful servant has come and that he has pleased the Father on our behalf, pleased the Master then we can rest. We can rejoice. We can have confidence in who Christ is and what he's done for us. And that's what it says in Philippians, is that he came and humbled himself to be the obedient servant, and God has exalted him because of his perfect obedience, because he did come and serve the master to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, why did he have to die? Is God just this harsh master that would demand the servant's life? No, the servant died in our place. Because God is just. And someone, we had been disobedient. We had broken his law. We had not lived up to it. And so there was a death that needed to happen because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so death had to happen. That's the payment for sin. And Jesus came, and he took our place, and he paid the price for our sin. But even his death on the cross was all part of God's plan, that he would be highly exalted, that he would go again from servant to master, to king, to lord, to rule and to reign. 
man, this is good news for us. That we don't have to strive. That we don't. That we we do get to participate. But our standing with the Master is not based on our doing. Our standing with the Master is based on the mercy of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we can rejoice. But don't think you're off the hook. <laughs> Jesus had some, some really encouraging words for us. John 13, 12 through 17, I want to turn there and look at Jesus Speaking to his disciples, and this has taken place in the upper room in preparation for, for what we've just talked about. For the death that he would pay on the cross for our sins. John 13, 12-17 says this. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them. Before we go further... He just washed their feet. He had placed himself in a position of looking up, of serving, of honoring them. And we're not talking like feet that he took the shoe off and then took the sock off and it's kind of clean. No, we're talking feet that traveled through the city and through the muck and the mire and all the other things that you can imagine. And Jesus humbles himself, washes their feet. He says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you, if you do them. We have the beauty of grace, the beauty of mercy in the person of Jesus Christ that we no longer have to strive. But if we are in Christ, then we read this and He invites us to participate in what He's doing. He invites us to participate into service, into loving our neighbors, into being merciful to those around us, into honoring Him with mercy. This is the master that's speaking to us. And yet, he serves the disciples by washing their feet. He goes beyond feet, beyond the circumstances, right? We ask for mercy in the midst of circumstances, but God had mercy in mind in the fullness of mercy. To redeem a people, not just from momentary circumstances, but from sin and death forever. That's the God that we have. That's the master that we follow and that we serve. One more verse to give us some more clarity this morning. Titus chapter 3, 3 through 7. <laughs> it says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Man, (laughs) we have Jesus. We cry out, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. And He's come and He's been merciful in the person of Jesus. It says He poured out on us richly. He didn't withhold anything. His character, the same character that the psalmist was crying out for because he knows, I remember the stories. I know that God is merciful and just. And His his character and His disposition is to pour out. And then God goes beyond that and pours out upon us Jesus. pours out His Spirit upon us to wash us with regeneration and renewal, to change us from the old and dead that we were to alive with Christ. To not only recipients of mercy, but givers of mercy. That's got to resonate with us. That's got to change the way we live. It's got to change the way we think. It's got to change the way that we view each other. We have to remember, we have received mercy upon mercy in Jesus. Our inheritance, right? At the end of that it says, so that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our inheritance as heirs is the obedience of the merciful servant. It's on our record. That's our inheritance. That's what we've received from Jesus. So when God looks at us, he no longer sees Joel, who gave it a half-hearted effort, but then failed miserably. He sees Jesus, who did it perfectly, who honored him and loved him and was obedient even unto death, death on the cross. That's on my record. And so Jesus is, is the inheritance that we have. He's the servant, and he's worked mercy on our behalf and... He's the master providing for us the way for us as heirs to walk in mercy and peace and grace. We read in John, and I just want to leave you with the last of what Jesus said in that passage from John. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It can't end in a head knowledge. It's got to work its way out into the way that we live. Not by our doing, not by our striving, but in in our believing. That if that is who Christ is and what he's done for me, man, I'm going to rejoice, I'm going to worship, I'm going to honor God with everything that I have. Because none of it's mine. All of it came from the master. And so I can rejoice. You see, as humble servants, we come to the master with our needs. And our greatest need is more than circumstantial. It's more than in this moment that we need mercy. It's that in all of life, I need the mercy of God. And the mercy has come. Mercy's come in the person of Jesus Christ. I pray that that would cause us to rejoice, to worship, to tell our, our friends and our neighbors, man, I've received mercy. You can receive mercy too. That's what you need. That's what you're crying out for. I see you striving. I see you wanting these things. And I've received it. Can I share it with you? Can we live lives that look like that? By the grace of God for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you that um, we can cry out for mercy just as the psalmist cries out for mercy, Lord, and we have received mercy in Jesus. Pray that even as we move into this time of communion, that our, our hearts would be focused on what does it mean that the, the blood was shed for me? That Jesus' body was broken for me to restore me to a right and holy God, sinner though I am. That His blood was poured out to wash me by the power of His Spirit to regenerate us. And not individually, but as a group, Lord, to, to be the body of Christ, to appoint each other to Jesus. God, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for the encouragement of remembering that we have received mercy. God, when we should have stood and received justice and judgment, God, you have given your Son who took justice and judgment on our behalf and has given us mercy. God, may it change the way that we live. May we be joyful people. May we rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you that all of this is done by the power of of your Son, through the work of your Spirit, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.